Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Today we're looking at another American tree whose heyday lies in the past. I've only done a couple episodes on the downfall of specific trees and I try to space them apart because, you know, they're they're really sad. But I'm not going to cry this time, unlike one other certain episode. Today, I am talking about the downfall of the longleaf pine. This tree was once the most dominant pine species of the Gulf and Southern Atlantic coasts of the United States. It's an incredibly neat tree, with fascinating uses, but just on its own, it's very well loved. And not just the tree itself, the longleaf pine can create its own unique forest type. But today, this tree only occupies 3% of its historic range. So without much further ado, let's dive into what the longleaf pine is, what happened to it, and what we're doing to save it. ready for the fourth pine species covered on this podcast. Pinus is easily going to be the tree group that I spend the most amount of episodes featuring. There are so many individual species with fascinating stories that deserve some time in the spotlight. But before we get into our newest needle-leaf friend, let's go over this tree group once more. Pines are evergreen conifers belonging to the pine family. North American conifers can most easily be split into two families, the cypress family is home to cypresses, redwoods, junipers, and other cedar-like trees, while the pine family is home to pines, spruces, firs, hemlocks, and a few other needle trees. But among all those, what makes a pine a pine? Cones can vary so much that it takes a little bit of a keen eye to differentiate them from something similar, like a spruce. The real key feature is going to be how the needles attach themselves to the twigs. Pine needles grow clustered in these papery bundles that scientists call fascicles. And they'll stay in these bundles even when they fall to the ground, so if the leaves are too high up, you can still check out the forest floor. Among the pine group, there are a variety of ways to divide these trees into smaller subgroups based on shared characteristics like number of needles per bundle, whether the pine cones have little pokey bits on their woody scales, where they grow, and more. The biggest division in this genus is between what are called hard pines and soft pines. Soft pines, also called white pines, have softer and whiter wood, usually five needles in their bundles, and flimsier cones. Every pine I've talked about so far has been a soft pine. That means that the longleaf pine is already special for being the first hard pine I get to present you with. Also called yellow pines, these trees' wood tends to be harder and yellower, more usually have two or three needles per bundle, and have sturdier cones. Within this subgenus, the closest relatives to the longleaf pine are going to be other pines that my southern audience is likely already familiar with. Trees like the shortleaf pine, loblolly pine, and slash pine. Before we get into its physical description, which you may already have an idea of if you've seen a pine before, I want to touch on this tree's Latin name, Pinus palustris. Palustris is a commonly used species name for many plants that means of the swamp or of the marshland. This is obviously in reference to where these trees like to grow, in wet lowlands. That makes the Gulf states a perfect habitat for the longleaf pine, 
Anyone familiar with that part of the United States may easily be able to picture the extensive swamps and floodplains characteristic of this region. And then there's that common name, longleaf pine. It is in reference to the leaves and how long they are. This is not common knowledge for a lot of people, so I'll go ahead and specify, pine needles are leaves. It is a specific leaf shape called needle-like. I'm going to continue to use those two words interchangeably, so don't get confused. But when I say these needles are long, I'm talking like a foot and a half long, able to reach from my wrist to halfway up my bicep. They give a beautiful bushy appearance to these trees and will typically stick around for two seasons, meaning that when you look at a longleaf pine, the canopy will consist of three seasons of growth. This year's new needles, last year's needles, and the year before's needles that are getting ready to be shed. When these needles are shed, they form a lovely blanket of pine straw on the forest floor. Many will claim that the longleaf pine straw is the best pine straw. That stuff will decompose and provide nutrients to other plants, but also exists to encourage fire. Longleaf pines are fire-adapted trees, and a forest that sees regular low-burning fires is a healthy forest. More on that later. The next iconic feature of pines next to the needles has to be the cones. And you know what they say about pines with big needles? They got big cones. No, really, they can grow to be almost a foot long, like fully the size of my forearm since I'm using my arm for measurement today. Remember when I talked about the eastern white pine and I used hot dogs and bratwurst for measurement sizes? Pines always bring the best out of me. Back to the tree, cones this big take a while to mature. We're talking around two and a half years until the cone is ready to open and disperse its seeds. Squirrels can often be impatient though, and it wouldn't be a terribly unusual sight to see green unripened longleaf cones that have been ripped apart already. Something I find interesting about the cones is that they're not serotonous. Cones are considered serotonous when they require an environmental trigger to open them. Most often that trigger is heat felt from fire. This tree has a few adaptations to regular fire, but the cones aren't one of them, and I'm not sure why. One way these trees are adapted to fire is with their bark, thick-plated so as to insulate the more vulnerable inner parts of the tree. The bark is also another way that the longleaf pine supports a healthy forest. Many different bug species call the nooks and fissures of these trees' outer shell home, which is good for the bugs and also good for things that love eating bugs. I also want to mention this pine tree's roots. I don't talk about roots often, they're usually below ground, so we can't see them, and most roots serve similar purposes, take in nutrients for the plant and help keep it anchored in place so it doesn't fall over. But for these roots' characteristics to make sense, we need to take a step back to the early stages of this tree's growth. What does a baby tree look like to you? I was always told in school that the term baby tree is absolutely wrong and inappropriate and that they should be called seedlings but I'm the one with the microphone, so they're baby trees. Many of you may be picturing something like Baby Groot from the Marvel movies. That's not what the longleaf pine looks like. Baby longleaf pine looks like grass. When it sprouts, it sprouts those bundles of long needles and nothing else. Scientists literally call this the grass stage. Here's what's even crazier. The tree will just stay in that grass stage for like five years and it's actually fire-resistant at this stage. All those needles serve as a shield that protects the primary growing bud that's hidden under all that foliage. 
I'm guessing this stage lasts so long because the tree is allowing enough time to pass for at least one fire to come through and give it more space and nutrients to just shoot up. But the seedling isn't just sitting there waiting. Underneath the surface, the root system is expanding as much as possible. I see this artistic interpretation of trees both above and below ground all the time. You know the one where the root system kind of mirrors the branching canopy above. That idea is usually false. Most of the time, roots will just extend horizontally from the tree, a foot or two beneath the surface of the ground. That top layer of soil is where most of the nutrients are going to be found. But thanks to years of activity before any above-ground growth, the root system of the longleaf pine is extensive. They do spread horizontally just beneath the surface, sometimes reaching over 50 feet or 15 meters from the trunk of the tree. And I don't know how many of my arms that is. But there is also an incredible taproot, a primary root that digs straight down, often 10 to 15 feet deep, and can be as thick as the trunk itself. That's the kind of success story that comes with patience. Now, what does the longleaf pine look like over the course of its whole life? We know it starts as a clump of grass. This stage usually lasts between one and seven years, with some instances of it staying like that for two decades. Talk about refusing to move out. But once it finally starts growing upwards, it grows fast. We're talking around a foot of growth a month for multiple seasons. Ultimately, it becomes reproductively viable at around 30 years old. This is when it can start making pine cones that produce seeds that turn into more grass. The longleaf pine will continue to grow until around 90 years of age, that max height being anywhere between 60 and 120 feet tall depending on how healthy the growth site is. And from that point on, it continues to live while slowly decaying. They've been known to live for up to 500 years, but once that decay starts to set in, it becomes much more prone to being knocked down by stormy weather, characteristic of the American Southeast. The longleaf pine is one of those trees where even if it didn't provide humans with any resources, it would still be something unique and incredible. Between those long leaves and cones and the weird early stages of its life, this pine really stands out among other pines. But oh, is this tree useful to humans? And oh, do we humans know how to learn a hard lesson about what happens when you use a resource way too much? When Europeans arrived in North America, they would have found 90 million acres of American Southeast covered in longleaf pine forest. For comparison, the historic range of the American chestnut was 200 million acres. While the chestnut covered the entire length of the Appalachian range, the longleaf pine is limited by how far inland it can grow. It needs those moist lowlands to be healthy and happy. But while the chestnut lived in forests mixed with oaks, hickories, pines, and more, 80% of longleaf pine forests consisted of just longleaf pine. Believe it or not, this was great for diversity, just not tree diversity. A ton of different grasses and herbaceous plant species loved the kind of ecosystem that existed in pure longleaf pine stands. And it was this kind of wonderful pure pine forest that Europeans found when arriving in this region. In John Muir's words, Low-level, sandy tracks, the pines, wide apart, the sunny spaces between, full of beautiful, abounding grasses, liatris, 
long, wand-like solidago or goldenrod, saw palmettos, etc., covering the ground in garden style. Here I sauntered in delightful freedom, meeting none of the cat-clawed vines or shrubs of the alluvial bottoms. Longleaf pine forests were sleepy refuges where, thanks to frequent low-intensity fires, one could enjoy the peace of wild nature in a place that was so comfortably beautiful so as to be like a human-made park or garden. But we couldn't just enjoy it for what it was. Humans need resources to live their complicated and sophisticated lives. Resources like trees. The British Navy specifically was in great need for trees for a few different reasons. The eastern white pines that I mentioned way back in episode 3 had the most perfectly straight trunks that were heavily used for the mass of British ships. While the wood of the longleaf pine was also desirable, what really made this tree valuable was its sap, called pine tar or pitch, whatever term you favor, it was an important substance used for making turpentine. Turpentine was a necessity on ships because it was used to treat and maintain the integrity of the wood that was constantly barraged by sea winds and salty water. It's also something very commonly used in paint, which I'm not sure if you really think about just how much paint we use in our societies. Quick history aside, colonies primarily existed so that the parent country could exploit these new countries for their resources. The American colonies were so important to the British because that island country needed a lot of external resources to sustain the world's biggest navy. They heavily exploited our eastern white pine forests because they had already depleted any large forests they had. And originally, they were getting their wood tar from Sweden, but they were cut off when Sweden got into a war with Russia in the early 1700s. Not a problem, said Britain. We'll just heavily exploit the American longleaf pine forests. And even when the U.S. gained their independence, they still made extensive use of longleaf pine for turpentine production. We still needed paint and wood treatments. The Carolina states became the hotspot for the production of longleaf pine and turpentine. And as this resource started to define their economy, so too did it end up defining their culture. North Carolina calls themselves the Tar Heel State after their pine tar production. The University of North Carolina, which... I literally just learned was the nation's first public university, uses the nickname the Tar Heels. Many also believe that the longleaf pine is the state tree of North Carolina. This is not true. According to what was decided in the General Assembly of 1963, the state tree is simply just pine tree. Longleaf pine is actually the state tree of Alabama, though. But all this attention comes from how much these trees were used. And I harp about how long it took us to figure out sustainable forestry practices, but it was even worse for the longleaf pine. Once they start growing, they grow fast, but they spend several years as little tufts before any of that growth happens. And one thing that really tanked the population was how we chose to clear land for settlements and agriculture. Fire was a little too scary for us at that point, even though the forest loved it, so we instead used wild pigs to eat all the vegetation that we didn't want and apparently they loved chomping on those grass-stage longleaf pines. Entire wild generations were wiped out like this. And with all the trouble that came with growing longleaf pine, it was ultimately determined that there were just better trees to grow for similar resource gain. The loblolly pine was a relative that was chosen as the primary replacement to the longleaf. It's actually the fastest-growing southern pine species, so even if it doesn't produce at the same quality, it gets money in your pocket faster. And when that was figured out, no one really paid attention to the disappearance of this forest. 
We killed the American chestnut out of ignorance. We killed the longleaf pine out of willful neglect. As I mentioned in the intro, only 3% of the longleaf pine's historic range is actually occupied by this tree, and only 0.01% of that population is considered old-growth forests. But this isn't the end of its story. These trees aren't primarily held back by threat of disease, and therefore have a pretty clear path towards restoration. And we've since learned that fire, a key component of healthy longleaf woodlands, is a tool that can be used to positively influence the landscape. You can look back at those numbers and be saddened by how little mature longleaf is left. Or you can be hopeful because of how much of its current population is new growth, aided by people who want it to come back. And we do want it to come back, and not even for the resources it provides. We don't need it for that anymore. We need it for a more diverse ecosystem. One that is healthy enough to support sensitive species like the red cockaded woodpecker, who struggle to live in a world changing at a rate insensitive to its needs. We need it because it will continue to mend our relationship with fire. We need it because we love this tree and it's really cool. Who listening to this would not want to saunter through sandy tracks with pines wide apart and sunny spaces in between? I, for one, would love to experience such a woodland in my lifetime. Our next tree is one that I thank every day for existing in abundance, because this tree provides what I consider to be one of the most important resources in the whole world. And that resource is chocolate. Join me on May 17th as I tell you about how a tree revered by the Mayans and Aztecs of old was transformed into the ingredient that I put in everything, even if it's not a dessert. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.